standing for the reading of God's word. Acts 2, 22 through 41. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. In crucifixion of Jesus and the trial leading up to that death and crucifixion, uh, a couple weeks ago Josh talked about the Jesus' trial before the religious authorities, the chief priests and elders, and they pronounced their, their verdict guilty. But they didn't just want a guilty verdict. See, they've been trying to kill Jesus all the way since Mark chapter 3. But there's a problem. They don't have the authority to lay down capital punishment. So they have to go to the Roman judge, the Roman authorities. So today we're transitioning away from the trial before religious authorities and to his trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Now, the chief priests and elders lay out all these charges against Jesus. But there's one that Pilate zooms in on. And listen, as I read Mark 15, verses 1 through 5, I want you to zoom, listen for what Pilate hyper-focuses on. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. See what Pilate, out of all of these accusations and allegations that the chief priests are throwing at him, what he focuses on is, are you the king of the Jews? In fact, throughout this whole story, you're going to see he never refers to Jesus by name. He only refers to him as the king of the Jews. And that would have been a priority for Pilate. See, Judea was a place known for rebellions. And Pilate's job security was based on quelling rebellions. So when he hears someone's claiming to be a king, he's thinking, oh, this guy wants to start an insurrection. So he, he's like, I don't, he doesn't really care about all of the religious accusations and the Jewish theology. He cares about this guy might over, try to overthrow Rome. And when Pilate asks Jesus that question, Jesus answers cryptically. He says, you have said so. He's saying, yes, Pilate, you're saying I'm a king, but I'm not a king the way you think I'm a king. See, the way the world defines kings is different than the king Jesus wants to be. And every day, you and I trade in the true king, Jesus, for false kings and false kingdoms. We've used the analogy a couple times of the throne diagram, that there's something else that sits on the throne of our hearts as our functional king, as the thing we functionally worship. In Mark 15, we're going to look at the false kingdoms that the characters in this story run to, turn to, trust in, and how the true king is different and deserving of your worship and my worship. So let's pray, and then we'll hop into the text. Lord, we need you today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May I speak truly, wisely, and clearly for your name's sake. Amen. So the first point, first as we contrast worldly kingdoms and the true king, worldly kingdoms fear people. Worldly kingdoms fear people. Mark 15, beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to—this is Pilate— Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him up to be crucified. See, Pilate thought he had an out. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He saw through the chief priest. He, he knew these guys. He knew these guys are just envious of Jesus' power and authority. They've got nothing on them. Nothing, at least, that Pilate cared about. And in another gospel parallel account, it tells that Pilate's wife had a dream the night before, and she came up to him and said, hey, don't mess with this dude. I had a dream about him. If you mess with him, bad things are going to happen. So Pilate really has no desire to condemn Jesus. But he also doesn't want to get on the chief priest's bad side. He knows they're popular. The Pharisees are very popular with the people, and he does not want to lose their support politically. So what does he do? He thinks he can have his cake and eat it too. He has a, there's a custom in Judea and also parts other parts of the Roman Empire where during festivals, a prisoner would be released at the request of the people. And Pilate's thinking, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll give them two choices. I'll offer them up this Jesus guy that I've been hearing all this about, and he's popular, and there was this big parade when he came to the city. Or I'll give them this really obvious murderer, this really obvious criminal, Barabbas. There's no way they choose Barabbas over Jesus. It's a slam dunk. And then I can go back to the chief priest and say, hey, guys, um, I know you guys offered him, but, I mean, this is what I do every year. He got out on a technicality. What do you want me to do? (laughs) But it doesn't go according to plan. The chief priests see through it. They counter by stirring up the people to request Jesus be crucified and Barabbas released. And Pilate seems stunned by this. And at that point, well, he should have done it before too, but at that point, he definitely should be saying, all right, no, no more of this. The just thing to do, I am not going to condemn an innocent man. Not guilty. But Pilate loved his job. And Pilate knew that to keep his job, he needed to keep the people on his good side. Early in his reign, uh, he had had some really heavy-handed policies against the Jewish people. Frankly, he, history tells us that he hated the Jewish people. And he had used up his political capital with those heavy-handed policies early in his tenure. And again, what's his priority job? Prevent insurrection. And if these people are chanting for something and the chief priests want it, and he knows that the chief priests can stir up the people, he does his political calculus and decides, okay, I need to trade in my morals to please the people. He even says, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Like Pilate, many of us fear the opinion of others. Many of us uh, fear the opinion of others. We fear being shamed or ostracized. We're worried about our reputations and what people might think of us. So we wish to satisfy uh, the crowds in our life, our friend groups, our social circles. 
we get, we're worried that if we share the gospel with people, it'll get awkward and people will think we're weird. Or maybe the consequences are more concrete. Maybe you're worried that if you talk about Jesus at work, you'll lose your job. Or if you talk about Jesus at school, you'll be punished. Maybe you're worried that if you tell your family that you're following Jesus, they'll cut you off. That's certainly the reality for many people in the West Side, from Arab and Somali backgrounds especially. It could be true of us in this room as well. But look at Jesus. Look at the true king. He's on trial for crimes which he did not commit. And yet again, he does not defend himself. See, Jesus didn't need the approval of the crowd. He did not fear the crowd. He did not fear Pilate. He did not fear the chief priest. He loved them. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah that would come said that the Messiah delight, would delight in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord in the Bible is different than the way we in English typically def- define the word fear. In the original language, it's a very physical word. It almost means more the physical sensation you have when someone's afraid. It means essentially being weak need. Now, being afraid can make you weak need. But so can holding your child for the first time. So can seeing something of incredible beauty and grandeur. What Isaiah is trying to communicate is that Jesus delights so fully in his Father's will that he is able to endure the cross and endure the accusations and not desire the approval of the crowd in that moment. Even if it means the cross. Because he knows the most loving thing for that crowd, the most loving thing for you and me, is to endure the cross and bear the wrath for our sins. Theologian Michael Reeves says this, when you fear God, God looms large in your perspective and people don't. Therefore, you have the boldness to please him and not simply do whatever people ask you to do. Do you see how the true king is different than the false kingdom that Pilate was pursuing? Pilate is pursuing a kingdom, a self-centered kingdom, in which his goal is not to love people but to need people in order to keep his job. But Jesus was able to love people because God loomed large in his perspective, because he delighted in the fear of the Lord. As theologian and counselor Ed Welch said even more succinctly, when we fear God and see him as big, we need people less and love people more. What about you? Do you feel a need to be popular and liked? When that moment comes to, as we've been talking about in community groups, to make the shift from casual conversation to talking about Jesus, do you back off? 
Do you avoid telling certain people that you're a Christian? Or what would it look like to delight more deeply in God and his gospel? What would it look like for God to loom large in your perspective, as Reeve said? What it would it look like to so trust in God that you have the power to, through the Holy Spirit and through his gospel, because he died for you and you have died with Christ and risen again through the Holy Spirit, what would it look like, the Holy Spirit empowering you to need people less and love people more, to make the hard choice to show people the beauty of the Savior? In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is writing to a persecuted church They've been, their stuff's been taken. They've been thrown in prison. Their buddies have been thrown in prison. All because they're followers of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, you guys were able to endure that with joy. Why? Because they, the author says, because they had a better and abiding possession. Because they had Christ. Because through the gospel, Christ had changed their hearts so that they so delighted in him and being citizens of his kingdom that they were able to endure persecution and the taking of their stuff with joy. Beloved, what steps can you take today to grow in the fear of God? That when the pressure comes, when the heat comes in, you can bear the fruit of joy. False kingdoms need people, but the true king loves people. And we as followers of his kingship and servants of him are called to love people as he loved us. That's the first contrast. Second contrast, worldly kingdoms seek violent vengeance. Worldly kingdoms seek violent vengeance. Mark chapter 15, verses 15 to 20. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Don't skip over the scourging that Pilate ordered. That scourging means that he was beaten with a long whip with bone or other sharp objects at the end. And under Roman law, there is no limit to how many lashes he could have received. It was not uncommon for people to die under Roman lashing. And after that indignity, after that physical trauma that he suffered, he was brought in to the 
governor's headquarters when a whole battalion was called. Your translation might say cohort. A battalion or a cohort was five to six hundred soldiers. Jesus was outnumbered 500 to one at least. They mocked him. They took his clothes. They put a purple robe on him. Purple was at that time a color for royalty. It was probably a, in practice, a faded red Roman cloak, military cloak that had faded to kind of resemble purple. And they put it on him to mock him. They bowed in mock worship and praised him with feigned words. They physically attacked him. They put thorns into his head. They beat him with a reed. Your translation might say staff. The Greek word could be translated either way. Either way, they hit him in the head with a really big stick over and over. These soldiers were violent and they were cruel. What motivates that kind of cruelty? These were likely men of battle. They had been in wars, they had been in fights, and they had seen people trying to kill them and kill their brothers in arms. And under that pressure, the, the default reaction of the human heart is to turn to hatred and desire to grab control and to punish those that had hurt them and their friends. They associated Jesus with their enemies. Remember, what is the Romans' job? The Romans were not there to be nice. The Romans were there to subjugate the Jewish people, to keep them from rebelling. They saw the Jewish people not as their friends, but their enemies. They associated Jesus as an insurrection leader, one of their enemies. Friends, when someone hurts us, when someone hurts those we love, which sometimes, in my experience, can bother us even more than when people hurt us, how do we react? Every one of us have people that have done wronged by us. They have talked bad about us and caused us not to get the promotion at work. The teacher that you feel isn't treating your kids fairly. The politicians that demonize you for what you believe. The people that hurt us in the distant past, our family members or bullies in junior high or high school. How will you respond? How do you respond when people abuse you fire you, mistreat you, slander you, isolate you. Like the soldiers, what comes naturally to you and me is to desire control through anger and violence. Some of us more likely to use hurtful words, even violent actions. Others, more internal. Sitting, stewing, simmering till that Rage inside you builds and builds and builds and builds. But again, look at Jesus. And it might seem like we're saying the same things over and over and over again, that again, Jesus does not retaliate. It's because Mark wants us to see something. 
If it keeps happening over and over and over again, Mark wants us to see something important. Again, Jesus, who is the Lord of hosts, could call down an army of angels in a heartbeat. Could say, oh, hey guys, you heard that story about Elijah on Mount Carmel? How he called down fire? Well, watch this. That's not how he responds. Look at how, what Jesus commands his followers in Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This, beloved, is a calling to radical love and mercy. Jesus is saying, anyone can be nice to people who are nice to them. People in false kingdoms can be nice to their buddies. But he's calling us to love those who are, it is hardest to love. And I'm not saying you don't need to establish wise boundaries in those relationships. I'm saying is that we have a posture of sacrificial love toward our enemies. Why? Because our Father is merciful and loving towards the ungrateful and the evil. Our Father was merciful towards us. As Josh said last week, not when we were his friends, not when we were his buddies, not even when we were his frenemies. When we were still God's enemies, Christ demonstrated his love by dying for us. Because our Father was merciful to us when we were his enemies and we were wicked and evil and living for self-centered kingdoms. We are called to love not just those who are easiest to love, but our enemies as well. And we, when we see him with unveiled face, and we know him as we are fully known, our reward will be great. 
you'll have greater capacity to know and love and enjoy our Savior. Beloved, what would it look like for you through the power of the gospel to change that heart posture? And let me take a step back. This is a miracle. What we're talking about is not easy. In fact, I would argue without Jesus, it is impossible. Because the command is more than just to love our enemies. It's, in another gospel, Jesus says, when you are persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice. We might, we might be able to mechanically, grudgingly, through gritted teeth say, fine, here's my stuff. I love you. Beloved, that's not the command. The end of the Beatitudes, that's what he says. He says, rejoice when you're persecuted. Y'all, that's a miracle. We cannot do that through sheer effort. That's only the gospel. That is only the God of the universe transforming our sinful hearts through Jesus Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. What would it look like to lean into the gospel more deeply? To take that step. I was reading a story this week about a woman named Corrie ten Boom. Uh, She grew up in the Netherlands in the early 20th century. And she and her family housed and hid Jews from the Nazis. And when the Nazis came into the Netherlands, they were found out. She and her family were arrested. And Corey survived the concentration camps. Her family members, especially her sister, did not. And at some point during this, Corey becomes a follower of Jesus. And she grows a deep appreciation for Jesus' love and grace. One day she's in Germany, post-war, speaking about the love and grace of Jesus, and a man comes up to her. And as the man comes up to her, he recognize, she recognizes him as one of the guards from the concentration camp. This is a man who uh, stood there as Corey and her sister and other prisoners marched in front of him, naked, and this man, she saw this man commit horrible atrocities. The man comes up to her and says, Corey, you don't know me. It didn't seem like the man remembered her. He said, I was one of the guards in the concentration camp. But since then, I have been convicted of my sins. And I've repented and put my faith in Jesus. Can you forgive me? And in her story, she says in the moment, she had no emotional desire to do it. Just rage was building up in her. And she prayed, Lord, all I can do is lift my hand. You'll have to, you'll have to supply the feeling because all I can do is the mechanical. All I can do is lift my hand to shake this man's hand. I've got nothing else. And she said, as she lifted her hand and she prayed, the emotion almost swept down her arm, through her arm, And joy overwhelmed her, and she said, Brother, I can genuinely 
forgive you with all my heart. Now, that's not the end of the story. These people did not, she did not become best friends with the man. But she woke up a couple nights later, just rage in her heart again. And she had to go back to the cross and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that anger. Help me to forgive him again. It was not an instantaneous forgiveness. It was not a Corey Ten Boom is such an awesome person because that she could just will up the ability to love people who were her enemies. No, she had an awesome God who gave her the power through the gospel and through the indwelling Holy Spirit in a way that demonstrated not that Corey Ten Boom was awesome, but that Jesus Christ is awesome. And you might be thinking, all right, Jimmy, that's cool. But I'm not a Christian. What does this Mark 15 have to do with me? Remember the crowd? Remember the crowd in Mark 15. How the chief priest had stirred them up to choose Barabbas over Jesus. A few months later, there was another crowd. After Jesus had died and risen and commissioned his disciples, he gave them the Holy Spirit. And after the apostles were given the Holy Spirit, they went and they started sharing the gospel with people. And a crowd had gathered around Peter. And it was a large enough crowd. And the crowd from Mark 15 was a large enough crowd. It's likely that there was some overlap, that there were people in both crowds. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches to this new crowd in the same city. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's not hiding in the courtyard anymore. He's coming with it. He's not mincing words. Hey, you remember that Jesus guy? Yeah, you killed him. It was according to the sovereign plan of God. But you were the ones who chanted, crucify him. And though you and I were not there historically, in a spiritual sense, it is just as true for every one of us. Isaiah said that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Barabbas in Hebrew is Bar Abbas, son of the Father. We see that the true son of the Father was condemned, so the sinful son of the Father can go free. This is the gospel. Only through Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, triumphant resurrection, can you and I be forgiven for our sins, not through sheer effort, not through doing better. Not through being a good person. 
only through the power of Christ. Now remember, these were people that, in the same city that just chanted, crucify him, crucify him, and was known for insurrection. How'd they react? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is the power of the gospel that in two months, two months later, these people who were chanting crucify him are now saying Jesus is king. Have you been cut to the heart this morning, beloved? Has the Lord put on your heart that you have done evil against him and evil against other people And that evil, that sin, is why Jesus suffered and died. If so, I encourage you the same thing that Peter encouraged the crowd to do. Repent. To repent means to turn away from the false kingdoms that you were following. From the false kings, from the things that sit on the thrones of our heart. And say, God, I'm sorry that I have put false kingdoms on the throne of my heart. I want, to, I want to submit and put you there, Jesus, the true king. I'm turning away from my disobedience, and I'm turning back to God. If that's where you're at this morning, I would just encourage you to talk to me or Josh or anyone on stage after service. We would love to have a conversation with you about what that could look like. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are the true king. And your kingdom is established through love. True sacrificial love. Selfless love. Lord, we pray that you would heal our hearts. You would forgive us for following false kingdoms of vengeance, people-pleasing, fear of man. Help us to delight more in you. Help us to delight in your gospel and turn away from those false kingdoms and turn back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.